Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Driven by an urgency to create a better future for his generation and future generations, David Zamarin founded Dex with one simple mission, to protect what you love. This mission is derived from his passions for entrepreneurship and creating world-changing initiatives that contribute to a thriving society and planet. David believes that through innovation and a commitment to reduce environmental impacts and negative health effects, corporations have the power and responsibility to disrupt the growing trajectory of global challenges. That is why he implemented a strategic shift towards a smarter business model that reimagines the way his company builds new consumer and industrial products, creating distinction and contributing to change. David, welcome to the One Away Show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Having enjoyed watching your journey and building a relationship with you the last few years. And uh, so good to be here. And curious as we dive in, what what is the uh, one away moment that you want to share with us today? Yeah, I mean, I think um, my biggest kind of one away moment was when we realized that we were going to be on Shark Tank. And then finally, when we when we aired. That was a big moment in my career and for for the company, you know, for various reasons and some obvious and some not. But I think the most obvious was that it it, it made our it made the business go from a college dorm room business or you know a business that I started in high school and a hobby at some points to a full blown company. And that was the real moment when things changed. Totally. Uh, so you say that our business. Why why don't you tell us the business? what you're doing, and maybe tell us who invested on Shark Tank. Sure. Uh, I run a company called Detrapel, and I started this company in high school with a very simple problem that I was trying to solve, which was I just wanted to keep my shoes clean. (laughs) And so initially, when I was thinking of the idea, I had um, a few mentors through a youth entrepreneurship program that told me, well, look, I mean, you don't know anything about chemistry, right? So the initial idea that I wanted to come up with, which was a film that could be peeled off whenever it got dirty, that was not going to really work. (laughs) So what we realized was, you know, or what I, what my mentors recommended and I ultimately did was I pivoted the idea to a, a local shoe cleaning company for local university sports teams in Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. Um, fortunately I was able to sell that quite quickly, um, four months into what I, I had my first exit, which was a, a big deal for a ninth grader. Um, and it was a small exit, but Hey, I mean, you know, when you're, when you're in ninth grade and, you, and you've got a little bit of money and you don't know what to do with it, it's a good position to be in. So fortunately when I sold it, I uh, started doing a lot of research in nanotechnology and came across some competitors of what now is Detrapel and just learned how harmful most of the chemicals that have been in the market are and how they continue to be made in a very unsustainable way. And so we started doing research on on natural ways of coming up with um, repellent products uh, or protective coatings, to be specific, without the use of fluorinated chemistry. And fluorinated chemistry is just a a chain of 5,000 chemicals that are incredibly carcinogenic. And so Detrapel makes, we're an advanced materials company 
that makes all types of different coatings, but specifically protective coatings that we really focus on that you could spray on any surface and then pour pretty much any liquid-based substance on it. And it'll repel the liquids, thereby preventing stains and messes and ultimately saving you time and money from having to clean or replace your favorite belongings. And so since you know, eight years ago, when I initially started the company almost, almost eight years ago, uh, we've transitioned from you know just shoes to a lot of other things. And we're actually mostly an industrial company now, but we do have a big consumer side of the business, thanks to Shark Tank. And ultimately, I was a, a sophomore when we did get on to the show. Uh, sorry, when, when the show aired, I was a freshman when we aired, aired freshman in, high, in college. And then as a sophomore, my first semester is when it aired. And yeah, it, it was a it was a great experience. Uh, it, it made a big difference in, in the company's life. We got an investment on air uh, from Mark Cuban and Lori Grenier. Seems like uh, a journey of a lot of exploration early, a lot of hard work early that led you down a path that you probably were never expecting, but you followed that inner curiosity and you know it seemed to work out for you through a lot of consistency, hard work, and probably a lot of strife and struggle along the way, as as we all seem to know. For sure, um, David. I I want to back up a bit and not just like dive into the business and how that changed your trajectory. I want to maybe start at like childhood and where you're from, and and take me back to your roots. Uh, from every time I talk to you, I sense this serious. I'm going to get shit done and it's going to be done well type of attitude. And like, I really respect it, but I, I also, you've told me about where you're from and your background and maybe share with the audience, you know, your upbringing a bit and, and where your family's from and how that shaped you as an individual. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I have a very interesting uh, <laughs> upbringing because I, my parents are both immigrants. Um, my, my mom's from uh, Kiev, Ukraine and my dad's from Moscow, Russia. And they met here uh, when they were, uh, 20 years old. They both came here when they were like 18, 19, and then, and then met shortly thereafter, got married, had me, and I got divorced when I was less than two. <laughs> so it wasn't a, wasn't the best marriage, but my dad was always in business. He was always, um, he, he was a stockbroker at first, and then he went into real estate and mortgages. And he's kind of an entrepreneur. He, he's got a couple of his own businesses now. Um, but my mom was, working 17 hour shifts after the divorce in retail. And she was struggling to make ends meet because I, you know, she was taking care of obviously me, her child, herself, uh, and my grandparents that were here. My, my grandma did not work. Uh, my grandfather did work in construction, but he was literally earning three bucks an hour because he was working on cash because he wasn't you know, technically fully legal here when he was working. So yeah, he was, you know, my mom was really the breadwinner and, and there wasn't much winning of bread either. So so um, I, we struggled and I lived with my grandparents for the first five years of my, uh, of my young life. And that kind of shaped me in a, in a weird scenario because I realized one, that my parents struggled really hard to, to get to where they are today, um, which ultimately made me very motivated and, and self-driven. So it was incredibly strange as a child. Like I, I was always very entrepreneurial from a very young age and always had like a, a chip on my shoulder. And so, and cause I just kind of wanted to fit in, to be honest, that's really what it came down to. I, I really just wanted to have friends. <laughs> and the only way I thought at the time to do that was to be gung ho and, and strong about my kind of upbringing and, and, and where I wanted to be and, and where I wanted to be was obviously where everyone wants to be um, in terms of when they define success, whatever their definition is. 
And so, yeah, I, I mean, I grew up in a very strict upbringing, very like I went to school not knowing any English. You know, everything was all about education. My parents would not or at least my mom's side of the family was super, super uh, strong on getting good grades, having great education and then, you know, going to the Ivy Leagues and, and whatnot. And so my dad's side or my dad, really, I don't I don't have anyone else on my dad's side of the family. Uh, my dad pushed business, however, my whole life. And I, I was constantly in this weird dichotomy between both worlds. And I remember when I was like six or seven, my dad never was shy about keeping me in the office or bringing me to any of his meetings. He brought me everywhere. And, and for that, I'm, I'm truly grateful because I, I, I can point to this one moment in time. My stepdad, who, who you know, I also called daddy, he raised me uh, along with my mom. He, he kind of is what picked up. He, he's the one that picked up my mom and, and kind of, helped her uh, end up going to school. She ended up graduating when she was 30 years old uh, from undergrad here in the States and became an engineer. And ever since then, my, you know, my parents have been doing really well, but, and they've made investments along the way. So they, it, it's paid off, but you know, the reason I bring this up is because my stepdad was a very plain guy. He, he was also an immigrant, also from Ukraine and was just working very hard shifts and, and met my mom, <laughs> fell in love. That was his first marriage. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was in his mid thirties. My mom was in her thirties by then. And yeah, I mean, things kind of went well for them, uh, which was great. But simultaneously, when I was like five or six years old, that's when they first met. But when I was five or six years old or so, and they, and they got married when I was around 10. I remember sitting in my dad's car and it's weird, vivid image. I don't, I don't know why I remember it, but I remember listening to Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. My dad had like the whole, this is back when there was cassettes still and CDs. So in his car, he had like the whole CD like playlist uh, that he bought, you know, with, with Robert's program or whatever. And he was listening to it. And I almost related to, to Kiyosaki's story where, you know, he's got like, and, and you know, I wouldn't say my dad, my biological dad was rich by any means, but he was certainly trying what every kind of self-help and, and motivational kind of um, entrepreneur advertises. So he was in real estate, he was doing a bunch of different things. And so I, I saw, at least in my eyes at the time, this dichotomy of rich dad, poor dad, and, and kind of like rich family, not so rich family. And even though my dad by any means was not rich. And again, I, I actually, you know, my, my mom's side of the family live much better off than my dad did. So I, you know, for me, I think one of the major things I noticed when I was growing up was that I, I needed a, a purpose. And for me, that was trying to be independent. I really wanted to be independent from my family. Um, I didn't want them to rely on me or sorry, other way around. I didn't want to rely on them and, and wanted to be successful early on. And so I was always critically motivated by my education, obviously, because I was one forced to, but I also, I, I naturally do love education. I'm a big proponent of it. I'm, I'm very strange in that matter where, you know, mo there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are proponents of dropping out. I'm actually not, um, unless you have a reason to. And I, and I lived that firsthand. I did not drop out when I was in school, but you know, I, I think, uh, I think that along with my, you know, my passion for business and I was always entrepreneur, I was always selling things, flipping things and making money. I was like a six-year-old and all the way up to, you know, high school and then college. Um, and then eventually those two things and the love of soccer, I was, a, I was a big athlete when I was younger is what kept me on the straight and narrow path because a lot of my friends did not go down the same way. You know, my upbringing was in, in a really rough part of Philadelphia. So unfortunately, a lot of friends I had, uh, I don't even know if they are alive anymore. We saw childhood from a number of different angles. And I think you, you know, the, the perspective of your parents being immigrants, right. 
and that kind yeah. of hard work ethic that was just probably forced. You know, both sounds like your parents were extremely hardworking. Their approaches and how they went about it were different and seemed to, you know, worked out for them in different ways. But, you know, you being the son and that you were able to see mom value education, um, value, you know, way of doing things. And you saw your dad, you know, try and be entrepreneurial, right? And I think given your background, you've, you've been able to kind of merge, you know, your, your desire to learn and educate yourself and also go to school, but then also like take control of your life and create that independence through, through business as a vehicle to do so. So I think that's really a special um, way. And I also would say there's a lot of people who, who may have had that upbringing and gone another way. Like, I think you yeah. were, you were dealt a hand of cards and you, you played them to the, the best of your ability. As much as I could. I mean, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in, in my case, I was just, I was kind of forced. It was almost like you said, like I, I was forced to grow up really early. I was exposed to way too much as a kid. Like I, my dad, when he got in real estate and again, I, this is another vivid memory I have. I was like nine or 10 years old. I remember he took me to one of his investment properties in North Philly, uh, in an area that was not up and coming. It was not gentrified or, or planning to be gentrified yet. And I remember stepping in and it was a shell and, and they had illegal squadrons in, in the building. And all I saw all over the floor was like heroin needles and blood. And I literally, I ran out of the place wanting to throw up mm. and I, and I was like nine years old. I, I remember it. And some people would call that <laughs> maybe inhumane and my dad take me on, but you know, I'm very grateful looking back at, it, I've always, I was always critical of my dad growing up, but looking back at, it, I'm very grateful those opportunities. Cause on one hand, I didn't have a childhood in, in many ways, but on the other hand, you know, that's just not the cards that I would, I was dealt. And, mm. and I'm very fortunate that, uh, that I, at least I had a good upbringing to, to keep me on the right path. Right. And just to like clarify, and then kind of bring this back to center, but when you see you don't have a childhood, like you don't have like this happy family with this traditional upbringing or. Yeah. 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 Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I was still a kid. I, I still, you know, played with other kids and I right. still had games, but I had, a, I, I was very non-traditional and I didn't have like the, the same kind of stress-free worry, no worries kind of, you know, uh, as a, as a child, meaning like, you know, am I going to get this game <laughs> or like, whatever, like whatever, like a normal child you would think would, right. would think about. I, I didn't have that. And the other thing is, is also, I, you know, I, whereas my, my friends were, I think sheltered in a lot of ways, I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I was, I, my, my parents never tried to pad or cushion anything. Like I was, I was told like, this is life. This is, you know, like life is what you make out of it and you'll get what you put it. You'll get out what you put in. And, and that, seems to have been a consistent theme throughout my young adulthood. <laughs> so every, every, every situation is different. And I'm not saying that every kid should go through this at all. I'm just saying, I'm just speaking from my experience and what's happened in, you know, with my family and, and how that rubbed off on me. Now other people have it differently. And, and I don't know if I would raise my kids the same way. I, you know, hmm. it's a, that's a question that we'll have to answer in the future. Totally. Well, no, I appreciate the vulnerability and the perspective. And I think, it's gone into like those traits, those core traits have, have been drilled into you and have clearly gone into what you're doing. So, you know, when you when you started, let's just say when you got the initial ideas for Dextropel, like how have how have those skills maybe propelled you, right? Like how how did the those initial skills, like really and that independence and that desire to learn really get you to that point to Shark Tank just to bring us back to where we started the episode? Yeah, the, the huge thing that I think all of this kind of culminated in me was that that independence 
kind of gave me a little bit of naivety and a little bit of, for lack of better terms, I guess, like like courage uh, to be able to to do things. So, and what I mean by that is when I was in high school, right? I, this youth entrepreneurship program that I got into, which was like the first introduction that I really had into what true entrepreneurship was not like buying and selling and flipping stuff, like something beyond that, like solving an actual problem. What I learned was, you know, people were willing to help me because I was young. And I think that independence and that, that self-motivation and self-drive, like I did all these programs on my own. It's not like I had my parents, my parents, like my mom didn't even know English until she went to college, until she went to her undergrad program. And by the time she did that, I was like 11 years old. So she knew nothing about any of this stuff. All, all she cared about was like, am I doing well in, in school? How's chess going and stuff like that. Like that was it. And so one of the cool things I, I had when I was in my freshman year is I had this knack for not being afraid to ask for help or not being afraid to reach out to older individuals. Like I wasn't intimidated by business professionals that had been doing this for their entire lives for you know 30 years. Like I said, for lack of better terms, I had the balls to actually reach out to a lot of people. Like I, I cold emailed Mark Cuban at the end of my freshman year of high school, um, towards my sophomore year of high school. And that's how I ended up getting on Shark Tank. And, and it was just by sheer naivety because I thought, well, screw it. Why, why not email him? You know, and got nothing to lose. And so, you know, I think that is what um, propelled a lot of my early success was it was just that ability to not be scared to reach out. And I think that's because I was immersed in all these situations with my parents. Like a lot of my friends or, or whatever, my peers were actually a lot older than me. Like all my, all my closest friends are all grades above me and, and older than me. Um, and I've always had it that way. I, 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 when, when my parents had friends over or like whatever, when we had like holidays and we had family friends over, I didn't sit at the kid's table. I sat at the big people's table and that's what I, like, that's what I remember. And, and I spoke to everyone, you know, normally. So uh, I was just, I, I loved learning from other people. And so I, I was not afraid to ask for help. And I, and I asked for advice when I, when I thought it was needed. You became the best at getting free consulting without realizing. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, it wasn't my intention. I was, right, but I'm kidding. I, I mean, David, I, I think that I, I really admired like the way you, you've said that. And I think a lot of people struggle reaching out and asking for help and getting the help they need when they, when they need help. Um, yeah. And it's one of those valuable skills and, you know, to be a good entrepreneur, I think it's, it's vital. And it's also something like my own mom taught me, you know, I, I really resonate with the reaching out to older people and having that naivete and just going for it. Uh, and why not? So it makes yeah. a lot of sense and also how, you know, you were shaped. All right. So let, let's come back to the big moment and uh, kind of share the, the story of how things have unfolded. So, you know, you, you started Detrapel, you got to uh, Shark Tank, you got the investment. Actually, take us to that feeling like you got the investment, you went through the hour and a half, you know, behind the scenes, you ran through your numbers and you got the deal. <laughs> take us to that moment and that feeling that you experienced when they said, we're going to do it. Yeah. Um, my my situation was a little bit interesting because it was that one of the quicker deals in history. I didn't do it for an hour and a half. My oh, episode... My filming was 32 minutes long, so it was very quick. You're right; the average is an hour and a half. It's it's 90 minutes long. Um, the woman before me was over three hours long. So, you know, she, my experience was interesting, and I think when they saw the story, uh, or when they heard the story, rather, they they felt culminated by it, and and a lot of them can relate to it because a lot of them started the same way. 
where they were, you know, started with one small idea and, and then it turned into something else. And then they were trying to solve a real problem. And that became real business. First and foremost, I walked in with a demonstration that was pretty damn good. Like I, I walked in with a white dress shirt on, fake tripped, spilled coffee on myself. The shirt got all stained. I ripped it off and there was another shirt underneath that was treated with my product. And I spilled coffee again and it rolled right off. There was no stain. And that was like literally the first, you know, 30 seconds of the presentation or first minute, you know, they were like, they were amazed by the product first and foremost. And then once I got into it, uh, you know, they, they asked, you know, they, they asked how I come up with it. And I started talking about the story. Uh, I said how, you know, I, I started in high school and they're like, we well, started in high school, you know, how long ago was that? How old are you? And I go, yeah, I'm 19. <laughs> I just started this like four years ago. And they're like, you were 19. And, and that's when things kind of switched over. And, and I think they cared less about <laughs> the product and more about the story. But yeah, they were eager. I think I, think I created, the, the, for whatever reason, created uh, interest really early on. Uh, and once one of them kind of bit, no pun intended, uh, the hook, then all of them started to. Because Mark was the first one that offered me a, a, a deal. And then Lori was like, wait, no. And then there's a commercial break that cuts out. But in reality, she says, I'll offer you the same thing, blah, blah, blah. Then I, I don't remember the exact sequence, but I, I think I either had Rohan Oza, who was the guest shark on my, on my episode, jump in and mention that he will go in. And I said, thank you for all three of your offers or whatever. And then I turned to Mark and Lori and I asked if they would partner together. And Mark asked me a question as to why I wanted that. And I explained to them that, you know, there was, there was a tech side to the business, which is the industrial side. And then there's also a consumer side and branding side. So they agreed to go in together and then quickly Rohan and, and um, Robert Hershevec went in together and offered technically a sweeter deal, but I thought the right deal to go into was, uh, was Mark and Lori. So we, we closed on air and then all the due diligence started right afterward. You know, that's when they really dive deep into the company. And unfortunately, once due diligence was over, there were, you know, several discrepancies from their end and, and on my side, you know, the, the deal wasn't exactly what we agreed to. So it was a mutual decision. We actually did not end up closing the deal at the end, uh, which ultimately I think was better for the company, but, but it, at the very minimum, what it did, it was, it, it changed the life of the company altogether. Wow. Uh, so you didn't do the deal, but you got, you were able to get the exposure and that, that you're able to ride the wave of that momentum of, of the exposure from that's pretty wild. And yeah. I feel like you don't hear stories publicly like that all the time. Um, but, uh, I, I can see why that was so impactful. Yeah. And I think, you know, for us specifically for me, um, you know, the, the cool thing about the show is that we had one of the most successful episodes of the season. Um, and not necessarily just my segment, but I mean the, the entire episode. And I think our segment was very highly rated, uh, and that translated to a lot of eyeballs. Now we made a lot of mistakes afterward um, because we were we were back ordered for like 14 weeks. We 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 didn't have and that, the funny part is I had a bunch of inventory in stock. We just we sold out much quicker than expected, and then uh, and then the backup inventory was in travel and it just took forever. So um, you know we we did piss off a lot of customers afterward, but I think ultimately it, it worked out well. Got it. How, I mean, just to go a little more tactical, when, when you had that delay, I mean, were you freaking out? Like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> I mean, take us to that moment. Yeah, I was definitely freaking out. Um, you know, we had, we had sold a bunch, I think in the first night, um, we had sold like 
just under 300k it was like over two days it was 300k of, of revenue just on our website which at the time was a lot of money for for the business especially when it came so quick and there were a couple things that happened first and foremost we didn't have enough inventory we realized that off the bat so the next day you know the the, the morning of or, or like two days later we had made a note on everyone's order that um if you're placing placing an order that you're going to have a delay of like, I think it was five to six weeks, which most Shark Tank viewers expect, I think. Um, then I remember, or maybe it was like three to four weeks. Cause that's what we were quoted for our shipping time. So then everything got delayed at the port and there was a whole shit show with, with that I can go into. But um, at the time we were exporting or we were outsourcing our manufacturing. Now today in present times, we actually don't outsource almost anything at all, but the point is, is that we, we ended up having these massive delays. I'm freaking out. And about, I think three or four weeks into it, maybe five weeks into it, people actually forgot and stopped asking us questions. I mean, there was, there were still people obviously following up and whatnot, but for the most part, a lot of people forgot and I chose to be proactive. And I think timing was, I, I think it was the right decision. I just think timing was incorrect. I, I, um, I wanted to get the message out quicker than, than what the rest of the team wanted. Cause the team, like, we had like two of our members on vacation, so on and so forth. And, and I sent an email blast to all customers saying, you know, we have an additional like five to six week delay. Uh, and we're going to give you the option, which was where I fucked up. Actually, that was the part that messed up. I shouldn't have given the option of what people wanted to do. Um, I, I said, we can either refund you. We can give you a free bottle or we can discount you a, a certain percentage or something like that. It was like three options. Um, and most customers wanted the free bottle, which is fine. But the problem was we had to then respond to all of these emails. And that was the issue that we had. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause we, cause in the first night we had like 5,000 or 3000 emails. It was nuts. It was the amount of people that reached out was crazy. And then on top of that, obviously you have people who did not reach out previously uh, who are either business owners and trying to get the product or they're, you know, sending encouraging emails or whatever. Uh, then you have the people that, I then emailed like, you know, the 30,000 people that had ordered. <laughs> and next thing I know, you know, like more than half of them were responding and, and we're back in the same boat that we were just in like, a, you know, a couple of weeks prior where our inboxes were just completely full. So that was, uh, that was probably the hardest part of the whole thing. And it was very stressful. Um, I think that's when I lost the majority of my hair actually, but, <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, other than that, you know, we, we ended up at the end, we ended up persevering and, and getting customers what they wanted. And those who wanted to refund got one. Nice. Seems like you rebounded, had some good adversity and days and weeks, months later, put it back on track, but good learning lesson. Don't give 30,000 people an option of what they want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be more, a little, you know, yeah. be a little bit more uh, forthcoming with what you're going to do and offer as opposed to <laughs> give them right. the, the choice. Or at least make it like a freaking auto response, like a survey monkey or something. I, I really messed up, but it is what it is. Yeah. So, so David, for for Shark Tank was what year? Two thousand. The episode aired into January of twenty eighteen. Okay, so twenty eighteen. It's twenty twenty one now. You know, pandemic years, things things go off. So twenty twenty. Oh yeah. To take us out to where the business is today, how it's different from then, and and how things have evolved. And, um, I would love to start there. 
Yeah, uh, things have changed dramatically. I mean, since Shark Tank, we've tripled in size. Uh, we were in a in terms of employee count. Now it's like, you know full blown employees, no longer just college students. We have people in their sixties, people in their fifties. I think the average age now is like closer in the forties, mid forties. Me and one other individual who was part of the Shark Tank time uh, are the only two people that are in their twenties and, and on the younger side. Um, but I, I mentioned all of that just to show the growth and how I've had like my, my COO and my chief research officer, both of those guys, they both have, you know, respectively like 37 and like 25 years of experience, multiple exits under their belts. Um, my CR, my, my chief research and development officer is like world renowned for his research. Uh, he's developed some of the world's most known chemical products. Um, we convinced them to like relocate out of Ohio, for example, drop their life that they've had there for 20 over 20 years you know he had a nice vp of r&d position at some a large global company he pitched us he, he he said to my coo and i hey we want to join you my wife and i uh, who's also a chemist would you guys want us to relocate and we were like yeah so i, I mentioned age only because I, for whatever reason i'm incredibly humbled that people are willing to make the bet on some 20 you know three now year old kid uh who just has a dream and a vision. Aside from that, the, the, the key critical component of what we do now, after Shark Tank, things really changed for us. We realized that one, we finally had a real company, not just a business. We could make things happen internally. So slowly and surely after my COO was brought on board, uh, we started bringing everything in-house. So the first thing was our packaging. Uh, we were doing most of that in-house at that time, but we wanted to bring in more packaging and more equipment and more automation. So we started working towards that. We then brought in all of the R&D and manufacturing house. So all, all of our R&D is done internally. We have uh, four full-time chemists on staff. Uh, sorry, three full-time uh, chemists on staff. Um, and then we've got our own production, our own manufacturing, our packaging, fulfillment, shipping, like everything that you could possibly think of, we do it here. And anything that we do outsource, like the printing of our labels, is done locally in Massachusetts as well, uh, which is where we're based out of now. So the company is, you know, it, it's... We do a lot of different things and our website only talks about our consumer products that are focused for uh, fabric protection. But the reality is we do a lot more. We're actually mostly on the industrial side. We work with manufacturers primarily. And then we have products that are completely in other industries. Like we have a food packaging coating to eliminate the use of fluorinated chemistry uh, in food packaging. Because unfortunately, all those Chipotle bowls, sweet green bowls, all the compostable stuff, it's actually not that compostable because fluorochemicals live in the environment for thousands and thousands of years. But more importantly, they're carcinogenic and they're proven proven uh, and linked to cancer and, and birth defects. So um, it's, a, it's a big problem actually right now. If you just look up PFAS, the acronym, it, it comes up like all over Google. There's there's new articles every day that that there's either new litigation coming out or new regulations being sanctioned against companies that use these chemicals. So we've kind of been ahead of the curve. That's kind of how you know I started the company was all about being non-toxic and to, make, to take steps even further, we were really the only ones that have any fluorochemical free products that actually work and are patented and, and have um, multiple characteristics to them. Yeah. It seems like you've thought through all the details. You thought about the environment and very sustainable, in a very society sustainable fashion for what's good for the earth and, you know, what's good for people. Uh, it's just clearly yeah. competitive eggs with the patents behind it. And you, know, you seem to like in the league of your own with um, the way you've been able to kind of navigate that. What, yeah. what you said, you know, you're getting people to bet on you with a dream and a vision. What, what is that vision? 
Well, I think what we want to do in particular as a company is, you know, we see ourselves as, as we want to be the leader in the industry for all protective coatings. And we really want to read, like, I personally think that it's, it's time that we redefine chemical standards because for many decades now, because this has been going on, Teflon was invented during World War One. Um, it's the same stuff that they use like on tanks that they use in your nonstick cookware. That was, you know, mostly recently banned, like the PFOA and PFOS chain chemicals. If you look up, if you go and shop for like cooking pans, you'll see that a lot of them say no PFA, no PFOA or PFOS, but that chemistry is old. It's known, it's cheap, it's durable. It's a really, really effective chemistry, but there's no reason to have it in almost every single product that's mass produced. And, you know, we, we think that it's time to just redefine those chemical standards to redefine what traditional chemistry is and, and to push boundaries further, because for many years and many decades, people have been trying to find alternatives to fluorinated mm -hmm. chemistry. They've just struggled deeply. And the consensus, the general consensus in the industry is that there is no solution to zero PFAS and the solutions that do exist suck with performance. Our first address, uh, our first issue that we addressed was having a good product that worked. We wanted to be a better propellant or, or protective coating than what's already on the market. That was a really hard thing to achieve because floral chemicals are very effective. Um, but we first achieved that first, you know, that was like the first criteria, but part of that criteria was to make it PFAS free. And so, you know, I, I think one of the main components of what we do is, is trying to really push the boundary of what chemistry allows us to do. Totally. I love that. And I mean, it's bold. And, and so let, let's, let's, let's carry this out a bit. So you, you, let's say you do, you re, redefine, you know, chemistry and, and, and protectants, uh, in modern day form, like, so what, right? Like what, what happens as a result of you doing that? Maybe from an impact perspective. Well, from an impact perspective, there are multiple things that happen. First and foremost, we save people. And this is like an, a rough estimate, you know, wherever you look, it's a different number, but there are, there's close to, I think it's $70 billion worth of goods being thrown out each year, specifically due to stains, due to being ruined uh, because of some liquid based stain. Um, so one, from an ecological perspective and from an economical perspective, you're saving people from wasting time and money by, like I said, having to clean or replace items, whether it's their couch, their clothing, their whatever, like doesn't matter. Um, and also makes people stress-free. That's really what it, what it changes. It makes life easier for the moms of the world, uh, for, you know, people who are having to struggle and, and juggle you know, three kids or two kids, a dog and a, and a, and a messy husband. Um, it makes life easier for them because they don't have to worry about all the stains and all the ruining of items that they'll have from the family. Um, but from an impact perspective, you know, it does, it, it solves a few major issues, which is, you know, having to, like I said, throw out items or replace items or repair items that are damaged um, or, or clean them. And then more importantly than that, I think is, is, we do all of that without the use of these cancerous chemicals. Mm. It's, yeah. it's a much bigger problem than it seems be, well, than, than what the regular person will know. Like my town, for example, where I live in Natick, Massachusetts, I get a, a letter, literally, I'm not exaggerating, but now it's been every single month or month and a half or last six months mm -hmm. talking about how my water systems are all infiltrated with PFAS chemicals. The problem is, is that there's no way to treat them. There's no way to get them out of the water system. They don't degrade. They're one of the strongest bonds in chemistry, the carbon fluorine uh, bond. So that's the whole issue that is present because 99% of humans in the U.S. 
have it in their bloodstream. Almost every single product that you can pick up, including your, your shirts or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like the color fastness and all the other chemicals that are used, the dyes, all of that has fluorinated chemistry. It's a big problem. Wow. When, when you paint it like that, right, you can really see the impact that it has on just the everyday person and how the problem is so big. I mean, you, you can impact hundreds of millions of people by what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. B2B and B2C level. Um, yep. Well, D- David, uh, big vision. Um, I'm so excited for you and, you know, stay the course, obviously, and I'm sure it'll all work out. For you personally, as a, a, a leader, let's just say in the business, or let's just say you're married now in your relationship, <laughs> how, has, yep. how have you evolved as an individual? I mean, you're very mature, clearly, in your thinking, but how has you know, your evolution as a leader impacted your relationships on the home front with the other leaders within the company? I think the evolution that I personally had in that sense in the, in the leadership perspective is, is communication skill and being more empathetic. I think when I, when I started studying empathy and trying to train that skill, I think things um, changed quite a bit. I think that's when you, know, you, you start to build better bonds with your team, better structure, and by no means are we perfect. You know, I, I don't think we do a good job here personally yet because we're a small team of being accountable uh, for certain things because there's a lot going on and a lot of people, there's not a lot of, I think, uh, this is me being critical of myself and the company. Um, there's not a ton of structure with what we're doing. Now, compared to like a regular startup or a regular you know company that's in the same mid-market tier that we are, we're probably better than most, <laughs> but my, my point is just, I, I personally would think that, you know, we, we could be better. And I, and I, I like to challenge my, my team and myself to do better because I know that we're capable of it. Mm. Um, it's just, there's so much going on that it's really hard to, uh, to manage all of that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it, but to answer your question directly, it's, it's been the evolution of learning how to be empathetic. I can, I can relate. I can relate to you in many ways there offline. Um, but uh, I can, yeah, getting that right is, is hard. It's not an easy feat. Um, so good for you. Uh, yeah. Well, David, I I'm thrilled for you. Where, where can the, you know, future David Zamarin reach out to you and find you? Where can the next <laughs> buyer of Dextropel find you? How do they get in touch with you? Yeah. I'm always, always open, um, to give or, or, or to mentor back or give back. Uh, that's how I got started. So if anyone wants to reach out the best, honestly, the best ways to, to reach out are usually through email, but, um, I'd rather stick with social for now. I'm trying to grow that. So reach out through like any of the social media links that I have, which is literally my name, uh, David Zamarin on all social media platforms. And then from there we can, uh, we'll link up. Great. Well, David, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for, um, you know, being yourself and, uh, I'm so excited for you on the journey. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive a written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.